Hey folks, Ryan here. Um, just a quick uh, note that we have suffered, I think, the rite of passage for your classic amateur podcast uh, and that we had a, a pretty severe technical glitch. Well, I'll let Alexi explain it. I realized like a minute ago that my uh, microphone was unconnected. And um, yeah, so, you know, his audio quality is going to be... Uh, uh, quite bad, but it's it's still quite comprehensible, and I don't think it really detracts from uh, you know anything except except for the uh, the professionalism of the episode. But you know that's what that happens sometimes. And as we progress, we'll hopefully fix those things up. Without further ado, let's get started. So, welcome back to Left Anchor. I am Brian Cooper here with Alexi the Greek. Before we get started here, I just wanted to remind folks that uh, if you want to contact us, um, our email is uh, leftanchorpodcast at gmail.com and um, follow us on Twitter at leftanchor, facebook.com slash leftanchor. And um, we may have a couple of announcements for you about ways to support the show. We've been getting some requests for that coming up in the next week or two. So, uh, yeah, keep yours to the ground about that. Um, so, moving on to today's episode. This is a, this is a rough one. It's gonna It's been rough news. Um, so I think we're going to start with a discussion of the... Today, this week in fascist murderers. Uh, and then we're kind of talk some theories after that and how to sort of explain and and understand what's been going on around us and maybe um, ways to think about it and hopefully how to uh, stop it from happening. So first of all, we have the, uh, the MAGA bomber. Um, he, this guy, uh, Cesar Sayok, I am not sure, probably butchering that pronunciation as usual. You've once again been given the Uh, Yeah, this is my job. This is my the burden I must carry. But so, you know, this is a guy. He sent uh, mail bombs to, I believe, ten different um, uh, Democratic politicians and activists. Um, every, you know, ba- basically, you know, you you saw these 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 uh mail bombs that were sent out they were they had misspellings in the names and addresses they had uh on you know sort of low rent free republic memes on there about trump and um they he sent it to all the most prominent you know targets of donald trump's ire so it was hillary bill and hillary clinton the obama's house it was george soros um, Maxine Waters, yes, CNN, CNN. yeah, Maxine Waters, um, Joe Biden, I believe, uh, and maybe a couple of others. But so, go ahead, Robert De Niro, That's Robert right. De Niro, yes, yes, and yeah. So then it turns out, you know, allegedly, but they they have this guy supposedly on a fingerprint and a DNA match. It's a fifty-six year old, just internet nutcase uh you know he he uh 
had this van that was just covered in memes and pictures and bumper stickers about Trump and Pence and, you know, Soros and just all the loony conspiracy theories that you see online from the, you know, just the the, the bilge of the right-wing internet. And this, this was a guy who just, you know, he took... Uh, He's clearly not familiar with explosives, it seems like, because they said that, you know, the, according to the FBI director, uh, Christopher Ray, he uh, these were these weren't hoaxes. They just they were not made very professionally and none of them went off. So, you know, I think it was uh, uh, my friend uh, Osita Nwanevu, a New Yorker writer who coined the phrase. He was the first one I, I saw to say it, MAGA bomber, but absolutely as the the what you know <laughs> what everyone immediately uh, expected of this guy appears to be correct um and uh so you know at least he's in custody and nobody was 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 killed or injured then we have something much worse which is the uh, synagogue shooting um, and this, you know, this obviously, if anyone's been watching the news, this was uh, a mass shooting at a synagogue by an anti-Semite, you know, allegedly, of course, uh, Robert Bowers, a uh, guy from Pittsburgh. He he murdered, allegedly murdered 11 people. He wounded six more, uh, including four police officers, you know, had just been notorious again for posting violent anti-Semitic stuff and memes online. Um, and, uh, you know, on the, on the far right racist forum, uh, Gab, he wrote, uh, quote, I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. And he specifically targeted this place i forget what it's called but it's like the hebrew refugee um agency but basically his theory is his grievance that he had was uh that jews and specifically george soros were were paying and otherwise conniving to infiltrate the united states with muslims and latino refugees and so that's what that's what he's talking about, supposedly, with this, you know, my people get slaughtered. We're letting in immigrants, immigrants kill people, and we just have to stop the, you know, so that's the sort of train of logic here. And so he ran in yelling anti-Semitic slurs and just killed, you know, shot the place up with a rifle. You know, on Sabbath, he went into a synagogue and knowing there would be a lot of Jews, um, killed a number of people, including uh, a couple brothers, a 97-year-old Holocaust survivor. Um, I'm not sure about the Holocaust survivor. Has that I've been, seen people dis- dispute whether that's true or not, but well, she well, was 97 years old. She definitely survived a lot of things. So what's yeah. it, what's in question is is what whether she was in, in a, whether she is actually in uh, uh, you know in Europe at the time. I see. Well, in any case. We have a, a white supremacist who is buying into a Jewish conspiracy to have brown people take away white America and erase um, the whites, essentially. 
Yeah, right. Erase the wise, you know, infiltrate the U.S. with criminals and um, and and just you know create havoc and and crime in the United States. And somehow Jews writ large are responsible for that. And I think you know it's it's maybe worth pointing out. Obviously, the logic here is totally just twisted beyond recognition. This is absolute crazy nonsense. All of it. But in terms of, you know, it's just like the, the, the really striking thing about this is, is the divergence, an absolute incongruity between the conspiracy and the actual reality of what's going on. And, you know, so, so number one, you have this just these, these people being, whipping themselves into this fucking just maelstrom of hatred and, and murderous rage over a caravan you know, quote unquote, just a, basically a group of 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 bedraggled women and children and families who just want, like, you know, to not be butchered to, by gang assassins and maybe like a job landscaping or picking strawberries or working at Walmart or something like if they get really lucky. Just the most harmless fucking people you could possibly imagine. A few thousand in a country of over three hundred million. 325 million people in this country and and it is absolutely beyond question that if it weren't for Trump and it weren't for Fox News and it weren't for all these far right websites whipping up panic about these no people No one would know and no one would care. No yeah. No one would no one would have any idea. No you, one would notice. Could, no one would notice. No. There, there are existing communities. You know, these these folks are mostly from Honduras. You know, because the Honduran murder rate is like ninety per one hundred thousand, which is you know like eighteen times as much as the United States. Um, you know, there's a Honduran community in the Washington D.C. It's like, yeah, you want to go get some Honduran food? You can go to you know Petworth, Adams Morgan area. They're absolutely average people, and there exists in El Paso and San Diego and probably a dozen other cities. And that, you know, America could absorb those those folks, you know, they're what, like four or five thousand of them without even yeah, a blink. Because there were, what, seven thousand, but a quarter of them sought asylum in Mexico so far, apparently. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are just people yeah, right. looking for asylum to go through a legal process of finding refuge. Which, yeah, I and mean, the only. I know we're, we're jumping the gun, maybe, but it's just such an av- aggravating, emotional thing. It's, it's hard not to, but like, just like. The amount of land we have and the amount of space and the amount, the amount of like accommodations and the ways in which communities can incorporate in our like specifically pluralistic, heterogeneous uh, country. Just, like think for a moment what, say, I don't know, Greece and other countries in Europe have done for just like a magnitude greater number of refugees uh, that they've been you know dealing with in, in, in ways that have their... their uh, you know, um, demerits and, and, and some uh, ways in which we could love them, but like an unbelievable different scale of magnitude of humanitarian crisis that's been dealt with in compassionate, for the most part, uh, ways. And we can't even, we scare up something that's not even a crisis in any respect. Um, and we're supposed to be, you know, the moral leader, American exceptionalism, right? It's just, it's, it's, um, it's, it's such an, a sad pretense upon which to do um, 
terrible, terrible violence that has no justification anyway. But but to do it on uh, there's something you're pointing out that's interesting to me. To do such outrageous, horrific uh, violence in a not just in a bigoted way, but in a um, senseless, terrible way, based on a narrative without any basis in fact that's propped up by leadership um, of Trump unchallenged by his party is so maddening that I don't even know where to start. Yeah, yeah. And again, to, to emphasize, you know, the the um, this guy was getting his stuff not just from conspiracy fringe websites, but directly from the president of the United States, from the Republican Party, and from the major propaganda organs of the Republican Party, specifically Fox News. And after this happened, you had a guy on on Fox News who, uh, you know, maybe I'll stick the uh, the audio of this in here on Fox on Fox Business, actually, I think on Lou Dobbs's show, who is making reference to that that the 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 Soros, the Soros occupied State Department. A lot of these folks also have affiliates who are getting money from the Soros occupied State Department. And that is a very great concern. You want to start cutting money, start cutting money there, which is to, which is an, like literally straight out of the protocols, of the elders of Zion, as Josh Marshall was pointing out on Twitter, which is that the government is being secretly run by Jews. And so you have this, you know, th- this is not at all like some sort of dark, you know, like like secret underground email forwards or whatever he's getting this stuff. Like this is from the top levels of the Republican Party. And the reason they're pushing this stuff is because they have nothing to run on. Their 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 healthcare agenda is awful. Their tax cuts are extremely unpopular and they're just you know, basically sort of settled on whipping the base into a froth um, of terror over a bunch of, you know, powerless refugees as a substitute for any kind of concrete policy. And that, I think, ties in with what we were saying before about how, you know, one of the ways that extreme, you know, far-right extreme politics uh, it is enabled is through that particular avenue of the 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 uniting you know economic policy for the 1% by the 1% with some kind of grievance racism bigotry to kind of buy off the rest of the population and and if not trick them into thinking that whatever problems they do have are the fault of brown people in some way look yeah look look fundamentally the reason that socialism or barbarism is ultimately the choice uh, when the failures of, of capitalism and economic liberalism um, devastate communities and people's lives and there's constant precarity and, and any number of problems, uh, is that leftist populism provides a structural analysis that, that suggests that we need to change the political economy and the very structures that give rise to that precarity. Of course, the right makes it all the more, that's challenging, right? That's fucking like uh, devastating to even think about how impossible it seems to, to do that kind of change, right? Um, the seduction of right-wing fascist anti-liberalism, right, is the promise that if you 
just get rid of and attack these groups. These groups are responsible for your suffering. They are the ones without which you would prosper. It's so seductive because it's so simple, right? And you don't need to know much. You don't have to have much of an education. You don't need to organize. You just need to know that um, brown people um, and Jews and whatever groups you can think of um, to blame for your alienation and suffering, they're the problem. And suddenly you can take all that agency that's been stripped from you by capitalism and now place it on groups who have all the control, like the, the Jewish control over everything. And suddenly there's meaning in your life because you understand now why everything's happening the way it is and you know who to take it out on. And um, that's easy enough a thing to do without a literal direct blaming of people like Soros uh, and of the media like CNN, who conveniently enough, right, media being attacked by Trump and the, tr and the media being associated um, by racist conspiracists as being run by the Jews, it's a convenient trope and very easy for Trump and, and others to push um, in order to rile up his base. And, and it's, it's disgusting. Yeah, and you know, be, you know, the media as, as this kind of you know, that, like like the 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 New York media, especially that you you hear from people like Ted Cruz, you, um, that's that's got a very long and distinguished uh, anti-Semitic undertone to it. You know, the media being controlled by Jews as being this sort of like, you know, part of their tentacular propaganda apparatus, and yeah, I guess you know. The other kind of aspect of this that that is, I think, worth mentioning is that, you know, like the, the phrase is that, yeah, you know, anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools, you know, so like you're you're identifying maybe perhaps like le like quasi legitimate problems, so to speak, but then just like catastrophically miss uh, perceiving the, the culprit. And so. You know, where it's like, okay, yeah, George Soros is a rich guy, but like he's a milk toast liberal at best. You know, he's not some kind of revolutionary and says so himself, you know, he doesn't really like Bernie Sanders type of politics. Nevertheless, he is a rich guy, certainly. Um, but what happens when you actually go into a synagogue? Is it full of George Soros's? Of course it isn't. You know, he's like, top one percent of the top one percent even within the jewish community and the people that actually get killed um the people that actually were killed there's a just a shattering article in this uh the uh trip trib live allegheny trib trib live i'm not sure what this website is but it's basically just a profile of these these two guys, I'm sure you, you might have seen this, these two brothers, Cecil Rosenthal and David Rosenthal of Squirrel Hill, and they were among the, the people who were killed. And they were, they were, they were two, uh, you know, reportedly kind of mentally partly disabled, um, you know, but not, not like, like uh, seriously so. But they, you know, they basically had managed to, carve out like a decent kind of life for themselves or they were kind of coaching basketball and they were had a lot of friends in the community and the most like 
decent, almost saintly type of people you could imagine. Absolutely non-threatening, you know, just nice, um, I don't, you know, you, you, you struggle to describe it. It's just like, like the, <clears throat> the absolute m- 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 most senseless type of target for this sort of situation. Not having anything to do with politics or even understanding really of what politics is about. They're just guys who wanted to, to be, you know, have like a pet and, and, uh, you know, coach the local basketball team and they're just shot to death because of because of rancid politics. And I think, you know, that again is nothing new here with the divergence between this 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 fucking horseshit propaganda and the actual victims when it comes down to what these people want to do to Jewish communities. You know, cuz like in Germany, I've I've seen statistics that like in Germany in nineteen the, of the Jews in Germany in nineteen thirty three, like most of them got out. I think almost all of them did. By the time you know that the the really bad stuff started to happen, it's some something like eighty ninety percent I think, and the real mass victims of the Holocaust were Polish peasants, you know, just fucking farmers because they couldn't they didn't have any money. They didn't have any way to get out. And, um, you know, it's it's like this this whole industrial state dedicated itself to, to killing people who, like, to, to the idea that they were even had any sort of influence within their own country, let alone being the global puppet masters of politics, was fucking ridiculous on its face. And yet, that's what they did. And so, you know, it's, I guess it's just to say that even though this may seem, and in fact is, absolutely the most crack-brained fucking idiot shit you could possibly imagine, you know, it's like we're going to go down to the to the, the halfway house for, for you know, kind of, kind of people who are, you know, me- mentally disabled people to try to, like, you know, go to the community center and like go swimming or something like we're going to butcher those people specifically. And that's going to solve all of our fucking problems. They'll do it. They absolutely will. Yeah. It's, um, you know, one of the things that really is important to highlight is the ways in which and I think this is obvious probably to most of our listeners, but it needs to be said anyway. The ways in which this is not just the actions of an, a mentally unwell individual. You know, it's not just something that, oh, well, you know, crazy people, right, to, to mentally, you know, to stigmatize the mentally unwell, right? The crazy people will do anything and you can't really I, I literally saw a clip of uh on fox chris wallace and, and um shepherd smith um getting heated um because chris wallace was, was trying to disabuse uh shep smith of any possible connection between the rhetoric of trump any culpability between trump's rhetoric and the actions of 
just an unwell person. And there's, you know, in a country of 320 million people, uh, there's a few nuts out there and they're going to do what they're going to do. And just doing the work, doing the political work of severing any analytical, theoretical connection between this madness and the ideology being propagated by our, our president. It's really, really important because this reminds me too of, again, the Corey Robin thing about Trump being dangerous only insofar as he's just another Republican, uh, which is true, but also not true. And the way that it's not true is that this wouldn't have happened under George W. Bush because there is a small but intense number of people who feed off of the racist, populist propaganda and ideological um, whipping up that Trump and his acolytes do. And the thing is, right, they have grievances and they just want to know where to direct them. And what Trump and others provide is a framework that gives them a way to make sense of where to direct those grievances and how to do it. Because don't think it doesn't matter that Trump has said, you know, if you punch somebody at one of my rallies, I'm going to pay for your legal expenses, right? Don't think that his wink, wink, nod, nod, support of violence, machismo, and his buddying up with dictators, authoritarians all over the globe isn't connected, right? It's the body politic, right, is connected. And you see manifestations of the disease popping up for a reason, right? There's a reason this happened now instead of during George W. Bush's time. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think that, you know, I mean, bo- both of these guys were, were clearly not like what you would say unbalanced or, or, or of like mentally well-balanced rather. Um, but, uh, you know. The, but, but the thing the, is the, that that mental balance or unbalance doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Yeah, exactly. No, the, 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 the point, the point being that, you know, I, th- I think statistics on, the level of, of assault, you know, committed by people who have mental illness is actually somewhat less than the background population. Exactly. And that actually mentally ill people are often victims of assault more often than they are perpetrators. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, like basically just beating up, you know, unwell homeless people on the street happens a lot. But, um, yeah, the, you know, the, the, I mean, in terms of the, you know specific context of this you know you have a you have a guy who was clearly drawn to right-wing pop uh politics and and had very clearly been paying attention to the specific things that trump was saying which which was specifically whipping up hatred disgust and anger at these particular people and you know like it's it's just not i mean this really is pretty much straight out of how kind of pogroms happened you know it's it's not like like you know pogroms in 
in Russia in the 19th century were not because Russia had some sort of like genetic predisposition for anti-Semitism, just because like this is how these sort of like racist, violent structures sort of like ensnare people and propagate themselves and result in these, you know, type of murderous situations. You know, this is what I want to. So I we plan to talk about David Hume and Judith Butler um, and we're going to, but, you know, I, I didn't know when it would be a good time to transition, but it just occurs to me when you, you brought up the disgust piece, uh, it might be a, a good point to, to introduce David Hume because, you know, we often think, and especially the, the liberal elite, if you will, uh, like to blame Trump supporters um, as being ignorant, uneducated, and if only they had a proper education, then we can avoid all the disastrous opinions they have and there wouldn't be any problems. Uh, never mind, right, that uh, the Stephen Millers and Richard Spencers are, are very well educated and there's all kinds of Nazi assholes that have great educations, right? Um, I think the disgust, the hatred, all these sentiments of which you speak that the shooter had. It's really important to see how uh, Trump and fascist ideology operates on the affects and on the sentiments, because David Hume was a philosopher, um, a great philosopher of the Enlightenment, Scottish philosopher, who uh, wrote on, on many things, but his moral philosophy is particularly interesting here because it speaks to the role of sentiments. It speaks to the role of sentiment, the role of feeling, the ways in which how we feel about things and about people uh, relate to our moral judgment and our moral action. So I think we should get into that. Um, one last thing I wanted to mention before we uh, move on to the the philosopher's stuff which is that uh yeah just just news breaking this evening as we're recording this is that um uh Jair Bolsonaro probably mispronouncing that too he won the election in Brazil uh, reportedly okay. about 55% of the vote he's basically a fascist uh you know fascist-ish Pinochet type of figure I would be very surprised if if he you know unless something changes like there probably won't be an election again in Brazil it will be back to a dictatorship within a few years but yeah so an insanely racist insanely anti you know LGBT anti uh, leftist um, you know Stoker of political violence is going to be president of the fourth largest democracy in the world. Yeah, that is um, that is upsetting and of a piece. There's a global body politic, and it's connected, and that's um, that's a sad development. Um, yeah, I was reading about how even before he was elected, days before seemed like the military were busting into universities and stopping left-wing uh, courses or courses that were teaching Marx or um, any number of uh, sensorial actions. So 
fourth largest economy in the world it seems to be in big trouble yeah yeah and a good just a quick bit of background here is that um the the actual most popular politician in brazil is certainly uh uh luis uh da silva silva um they i think they call him lula yeah he he was a he was a uh i think he was formerly the president and he was going to run again but he was imprisoned on very suspect corruption charges that almost certainly were basically trumped up by the right-wing judiciary and the right-wing prosecutors basically to incarcerate the most popular uh you know political opponent to the far right because he's not even a socialist he's a sort of like moderate i would say moderate social democrat basically but the business class in brazil uh, preferred a fascist and so they rigged the election basically by imprisoning the the most popular politician and so this is a, a an important illustration of how democratic choices you know it, like it I think it can be somewhat tempting to look at this and be like, what the fuck are people thinking? Right. You know, it's like, how can you vote for this fucking guy? But it's important to note that is a valid concern, certainly, but it's important to note that that democratic choice has been, is kind of presumptively illegitimate, I would say, but it's definitely been structured in a way to foreclose the possibility of true choice to where people could actually vote for, you know, a wide slate of candidates. Well, and that's, you know, another episode for us to talk about the United States and our representative democracy or our putative, quote unquote, um, quote unquote, um, rep- republic. Uh, even as a representative democracy, it is um, totally jiggered in order to suppress um, true democratic voice. And those levers have been used by the elites very well. Um, and then, of course, neoliberalism and capitalism also collaborate to do just that. So that's another episode. But, um, yeah, I think that's an important point to make. But it also harkens back to our previous episode on fascism and capitalism, which is to say that the elites, the wealthy, collude and enjoy uh, those fascistic politicians who would help them gain and grow in their wealth and power while those who do not actually benefit in power or wealth, um, but are enticed by the promise of the spectacle of violence and the false empowerment or the substitute for empowerment that they get from acting out and being given the uh, room to be violent and enjoy the lashing out at groups that are putatively to blame for their otherwise uh, unimportant, uh, less than meaningful and precarious lives, is all of a piece in this disgusting and sad uh, national and global political situation in which we find ourselves. So, you know, given all that, how can theory, how can political philosophy um, be a resource for us? One might ask. I'm, I'm going to ask. And uh, Help us, Professor. You know, uh, I, uh, I got the gift of gab sometimes, and, and it gives me refuge in a time of sadness. And, and um, it's been, you know... <laughs> I wanted to make an uh, analogy about being unmoored and we have the left anchor, but uh, it seemed a bit much. So here we are. David Hume, 18th century, mid-18th century. 
died in 1776, actually. Some, some fortuitous uh, publications and deaths going on. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations is published in 17, 1776. David Hume dies in 1776. Uh, something else regarding the beginning of our country happened in 1776. I don't know. But uh, Hume's moral philosophy is something that, although steeped in the Enlightenment, as he was, has less than... Um, Less influence, it seems, than the more rationalist moral philosophies in which reason seems to be at the heart of, or at the root, I should say, of how we think people should and do decide what is good, bad, and how to act. Here's the thing. Hume thought that while reason helps us make moral distinctions, it does not supply us with either the motive or desire or finally the judgment about what is good or bad, what is moral or immoral. And this is relevant because it occurred to me, and you know, I teach undergrads and, and they can appear somewhat sociopathic at times. And what I mean by that is that I will be telling them of, or even showing them visual images, right? of the most terrible atrocities, and especially the first years, because, you know, it takes time to become less sociopathic. Uh, I will ask them how they feel about what they, not what they think, but how they feel about what they've read or what they've seen. And I will invariably get, no, I don't know. Mm, yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I fear for our future and for their souls, because I, I worry that they're sociopaths. Um, and it occurred to me when teaching David Hume, who says that ultimately it's our sentiments, our feelings that matter, and that the that reason should be, uh, which is counterintuitive to most, reason should be the slave to the passions, right? And not vice versa. It occurred to me that in sociopaths or psychopaths, it's not reason that they're lacking. It's feeling. It's empathy. Yes. Right? And And so... Hume discusses that, you know, we need to educate our sentiments properly. We need to learn how to feel a certain way about the other. Because when you decide whether something is good or bad, ultimately that final judgment is aesthetic, he says. It's akin to taste. There's moral disgust or moral beauty um, that you feel. Yeah, he, he has a nice quote here, which I, I liked. Um, Do it. In his, in his uh, I, I guess, an essay... An inquiry concerning the principles of morals, or if that's a book or whatever. But it says, um, uh, quote, reason being cool and disengaged is no motive to action and directs only the impulse received from appetite or inclination by showing us the means of attaining happiness or avoiding misery. Taste, as it gives pleasure or pain and thereby constitutes happiness or misery, becomes a motive to action and is the first spring or impulse to desire and volition. End quote. Yeah, and I thought that I thought that was, uh, yeah, very perceptive, um, certainly for the time, and also a nice rebuke to the to the kind of like neo positivist, scientistic type of people like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, and like you could just, you know, you could just like reason out all of morality to sort of turn crank logic and stuff like that, and it's like. No, those are different types of thinking, you know, and you you can be a very rational, um, 
you know, uh, racist. Exactly. Exactly. Or and, and, just... it, and this harkens back to Rousseau, who basically shows that, you know, even a horse has this innate pre-rational pity when it comes across the dead body of another horse or another animal. Whereas yeah. it's reason that allows us to rationalize that suffering is okay and, and to distance us from that natural pity, right? So our sentiments can be properly educated or they could be distorted and, and then reason can get in the way of them and actually distort them from their, yeah. from their innate ability to uh, properly judge what is worthy of moral disgust or moral beauty, right? Um, you know, there, there's... There's another quote, but this time I think by Judith Butler that is worth connecting to this, just because... Oh, yeah, just, just to barge in here real quick. Judith Butler, to be clear, is a uh, famous feminist critical theory academic... Uh, someone who has, you know, been a very uh, pioneering and innovative scholar in those matters and is, I would say, notorious for writing incredibly difficult to understand kind of Hegelian style, deliberately obscure prose, but uh, nevertheless is very influential today. It seems to me that if it's true, and I think it is in a way, that uh, reason can make all kinds of distinctions and can set up narratives for us, but really we need to have, and, and Hume says this, right? We need to be able to feel the whole, right? So, so reason can add facts or take away facts and it can give reasons for things, but we need to have a sense of the whole and that sense of the whole will make us feel a certain way. And that feeling is conditioned by uh, the context, historical, social, and otherwise in which we live, right? So, so we do not educate our sentiments alone. We, we learn how to feel both from our innate sympathy that maybe Rousseau spoke of, but also by learning through social relations and through the society in which we live, right? And if that's the case, then I think it makes Judith Butler's um, work on whose lives are grievable on precarity. And specifically, this is a quote from Frames of War that I think further elucidates both the problem and perhaps where the solution lies and then how it's connected to, to leftist theory and practice. So she writes, there's something important about the politics of moral responsiveness, namely, so this is a quote, that what we feel is in part conditioned by how we interpret the world around us, that how we interpret what we feel actually can and does alter the feeling itself. If we accept that affect is structured by interpretive schemes that we do not fully understand, can this help us understand why it, we might feel horror in the face of certain losses, but indifference or even righteousness in light of others? And then here she talks about war. In contemporary conditions of war and heightened nationalism, we imagine that our existence is bound up with others with whom we can find national affinity, who are recognizable to us and who conform to certain culturally specific notions about what the culturally recognizable human is. 
This interpretive framework functions by tacitly differentiating between those populations on whom my life and existence depend and those populations who represent a direct threat to my life and existence. When a population appears as a direct threat to my life, they do not appear as lives, but as the threat to life, a living figure that figures the threat to life. And although she's speaking of war and the ways that the lives that are grievables tend not to include those whom our nation kills on our behalf in war on the battlefield through drone strikes, I think that piece about recognizing or not recognizing the human, depending on our interpretive scheme about who and whose lives do we depend on and which lives are a threat to our existence is so salient and connected to what Trump and others do when they take these groups like those in the caravan, right, and Jews, and basically say to someone like this shooter, those people are not human. Those are, in fact, the direct threat to your life. And you might well feel righteousness in taking out that threat. You might well feel heroic. And I think that is a bone-chilling but spot-on way to understand why such a monster could have done what was done yesterday. Yeah, I, 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 there's a, yeah, there's a lot of wisdom there. And I think that, um, you know, she's talking about war, right? And, um, again, I, I guess like, I, you know, obviously we're not saying that this, this type of thinking is necessary, you know, necessarily rational, right? Like, like, obviously this synagogue was not, any kind of actual threat to this person, but what that what this what this right wing pathology does, and how this like increasingly extreme right wing rhetoric does, is activate that kind of thinking, which may be logical in a sort of its own context when you're in like an actual war, you know, where it really kind of is you know kill or be killed type of situation, and deploying it on behalf of absolutely, you know anodyne powerless people who are just like going to synagogue on a Saturday morning, you know, and, and how, you know, that process of political, you know, brain curdling, but you know, you what, know, you know what though, Ryan, like reason is always situated in these narratives and ideologies that give meaning and structure to our, our lives. Like it, it actually is also crazy if you're a soldier in a war to just kill. Like if you think about it, like it's normalized. Yes. It's normalized. I was like, oh, of course it makes sense. That I just kill this brown person in front of me because I'm a soldier in the U.S. Army and I'm in Iraq. And like, of course that makes sense. But if you think about it, it's fucking bananas that that's the case, right? Yes. This... Like it's also crazy. But reason, right, feels like it makes sense when it has these structures behind it. And so to us, it's even crazier that this particular narrative gave rise to this logic of violence. But like most logics of violence, if you really think about them, are totally unnecessary and fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess in the in the context of a war, most war, you know, I would say there's 
there's maybe like two or three wars you could point to where it really was a situation of like there kind of was no way around this like the civil war for example the american civil war a kind of a war in which they're genuinely like this is the only way we're going to solve this particular problem um and the end result was a a massive increase in human flourishing and freedom. Yeah, I think that's a good and then point. O- yeah. Be- and then obviously World War Two, But yeah, as, as you know, it's like, like for the situation of the soldier in Iraq, you know, it's like, okay, we're in this situation where like, you know, we're, we're sort of fighting these like, like this shadowy insurgency and like, it can be sort of rational to think about like, okay, well, I have to be very suspicious of anybody driving up to this checkpoint because it might be a car bomb or whatever. That part of it's rational. The, the nutting, the craziness comes in that absolute irrationality comes in. Like, why are we in this country in the first place? You know, like that part is every bit as in, in just lunacy as any kind of act of mass violence in you know, domestic setting. Well, and that's a good point because, look, the threat in an actual war war is very obvious and very um, focused on, like, literally, there's people with weapons here. I have weapons, and this is this is war. But the violence that someone like the shooter felt is the everyday violence of capitalism, neoliberalism, and the daily uh, meaninglessness of uh, the social structures and social relations produced by those structures, right? And so that is a a much more complicated thing to to cope with and be like, okay, I need to figure out who the enemy is here so I can have agency and and be empowered and fight it. And all the more pernicious in that situation is that those who actually represent the elites in those systems that give rise to that daily violence, peddling the kind of propaganda and conspiracy theories that pit the Jews and brown people and whomever else as those who deserve to be acted out against. So, so it is rational and, and it fits in a narrative in a way. It's just that like the cause of the initial grievance against the shooter and those like him is much more diffuse and complicated to figure out if you don't have like a good grounding in like political theory and, and like, you know, if you don't have a good left anchor, uh, then you might be seduced by some explanation that's easy, simple, and gives you uh, a way to find yourself as a, as a soldier in this war against the violence that you feel, right? So it's, it's a different kind of battle, but, but one where uh, it's equally logical to him, right? It's just a more complicated scenario in which a logic has to be constructed. Hmm. Do you do you think though that this this guy was kind of res, you know these these folks were actually responding to anything, or were you know or were yeah. they just kind of as opposed like, to what yeah as opposed to what well as opposed to just kind of like getting you know it reminds me uh, I guess the way I imagine this kind of happening obviously I've never been like a murderer an anti-Semitic murderer, but the way I imagine this happening is, um, you know, you have people who maybe they have like a reactionary kind of instincts, but they just sort of, they go online, they get in these communities, they start listening to Fox news and, you know, the right wing talk show hosts. And 
it's just like this process of further and further and further radicalization where they kind of, you know, I, I imagine it as being similar to, you know, sometimes I'll like watch a video on YouTube and unfortunately I, I, uh, you know, find YouTube like quite, quite addictive sometimes like i watch a, i'll watch a video about like a cell phone on youtube and, and youtube will serve me my up name like f- my name is ryan and i haven't watched a youtube video in five days <laughs> so they watch a watch a video about a cell phone they're like oh this new cell phone's coming out and then and then they'll serve me up like 10 more videos about cell phones and i'll watch that one and be like oh this looks like a nice one you know and, and like and then, you know, I'll sort of black in 45 minutes later, you know, while I've been like doing dishes or something. And <laughs> you know, like and now I'm an expert in all the cell phones that are coming out in the next month. Um, oh, is the notch good? Is the notch bad? Well, let me tell you, I don't, you know, I'm never going to buy one of these things. But I, I, you know, I wonder if that isn't more, you know, if it if it isn't more of a just totally internal to the 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 sort of like ideology and structures of these type of discursive spaces to where it's like like the outside world like the actual like reality of whatever this person is doing in their daily lives has almost nothing to do with it at all and you're just like there's like i'm just getting really into racism and uh, i just want to like start murdering people and like nothing's changed or justified this in any way. Like I just really enjoy. It. I just think that this needs to happen now. Yeah, but so, I, you know, so, again, it's sort of a supposition on my part. Look, you know, neither of us is a psychologist or um, you know, <laughs> forensic expert of um, criminology or something. But that being said, right, like insofar as this is a symptom of a broader problem, which is that like. Your subjectivity, his subjectivity is shaped by what you do and what you think and what you do and what you think are shaped in so much, in so many ways by what you have available to you. And so if you're in a situation where what you have available to you in your time after you work like however many hours you're trying to struggle through life is like fucking YouTube and like online rooms and your look when you do that the reason might be because you have nothing else to do and it's a thing that you can get wrapped up in and it's addictive or whatever but the result of it is that your sentiments are educated a certain way so he for sure came to find whether he had it from age two or not i don't know his history whether or not it had to be helped along a lot or a little bit his moral sentiments were shaped so he had moral disgust at certain groups, okay? And whether it's Trump or these online chats or, or whatever, that was shaped by the circumstances and the people and the social relations around him in such a way that he, look, the, you know, Alistair McIntyre, which, you know, very few leftists are going to love, although he has Marxist roots, talks about the way that our personal identity cannot, as liberals think, be something that is created out of in a vacuum out of nowhere it is tethered to right narratives that are on offer from the time and place in which we live okay so in the time and place in which we live people's narratives are shaped sometimes on the internet sometimes through uh politicians speaking right and so his personal identity got bound up 
And, and if you don't have meaning in life, right, if you don't have a, a, a telos to which you're working, that's when people want to kill themselves because they don't know what they're doing anything for. It's all arbitrary. Except that for anyone, you can find meaning, apparently, in being a hero who's a racist, who thinks that certain groups are responsible for the decline of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And you can find meaning in agency and acting out against those groups. So I do think that those narratives and Trump and, who, and those online rooms or whatever else, uh, and maybe I'm dating myself by talking about chat rooms because it's probably not, it's not, it's not, not at all. Twitter is a big yeah. chat room. Exactly, right? Uh, the, the point is that like in a neoliberal society and political economy in which there's so few easy ways to find not just security, but meaning. And all the more where your precarity is involved, you seek out narratives that give you meaning despite that, right? I think that like, as unwell as he might be, it is undeniable that these narratives shaped the ways in which he thought he could exercise agency against particular groups, you know? And, and that's just like something that wouldn't happen otherwise if not for um, the conditions that capitalism gave rise to and then the ways in which people like Trump took advantage of those conditions to give narratives that blame certain groups. I don't know if that answers your query. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's right. And, well, and I think that, you know, you're talking about the broader context and I'm, th I'm you know, I'm, I'm thinking more of like this sort of like self-radicalized lone wolf, uh, you know, kind of, al-qaeda-esque person um but but these yeah, people I mean, these people wouldn't exist unless they thought there were others who would love what they're doing though they, they're seeking yeah ironically they're seeking recognition right yeah 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 which is like, I, I think do you think yeah yes i i think that's right and and i think you know i guess the the you know one one you know one o overarching structure here which has to do with with capitalism certainly is, is the, you know, how these number one, these plat, you know, these social media platforms are, 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 are operated and funded and, um, you know, how they make their money and how they do not crack down at all for, you know, they're very reluctant to crack down on, on f extreme right propaganda because it's very profitable because lots of people watch that crap. Um, and also, you know, as we've spoken before about how, like, these types of narratives are very convenient for plutocrats who, you know, uh, w would like, you know, want to feed their base anything other than actual economic populist policy. Um, yeah, and I guess, I don't know, I mean, it, it, I guess I'm somewhat out of my depth here and you're talking about the political psychology and so forth. Uh, no, but, but what it, were you, you were, you were, I mean, I want to, I don't want to disregard your point, which is like, you think that maybe we shouldn't get, um, too kind of, I don't know, you wanted to make it a little bit simpler in a way, right? Well, I, what I wanted to make clear was that I think, I think there's a way you know, I, I think that a lot of the debate about sort of, you know, 
like pe- like liberals make lol economic ang- anxiety jokes on Twitter all the time. And I definitely, you know, I think that that there there's there's a certain like class of Trump voter that you might kind of have a little bit of sympathy for or you might even if you don't have sympathy for you might view as winnable. You know, someone who's like not into really doesn't care about immigration maybe or just like a second tier issue and is voting for Trump because he hated Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, You know, your Richard Ojeda type of person who is actually running for Congress in the West Virginia third district and voted for Trump and now says he regrets that he is very much pro legal immigration, wants to path to citizenship and all that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, and, and so, like, even if you could say, like, it is more or less indefensible to be voting for Trump, you might say it's like, still, we might say, all right, whatever, I'm going to let bygones be bygones, you recognize your mistake. But then, that you know, like, when it, when it comes to, uh, you know, anti-Semitic mass murderers, at least in this particular case, the particular context of just like a single person, you know, going on this sort of spree killing. Um, I definitely don't want to associate, uh, inadvertently justify that anyway, I guess is the sort of point I was trying to make. And just, just to be like, you know, I don't, I don't think that. I see. So you can, Explain away, if not support, certain support for Trump because of certain people's conditions and, and rationales for lesser of two evils or whatnot. But but in no such way could that kind of logic apply to this kind of monster. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. And I mean, you know, uh, let- I mean, I guess you, you think about it's like if you think about Germany under Nazi rule. I guess that's a kind of a different situation because you can't ever take like a genetic determinist type of view of that to just be like the German brain pan no. is uh, right. d- just pre- predestined to support anti-Semitism. Well, no, and, um, but and, it, and I, think, but, I think you're concerned with the fact that if Trump is culpable, that takes away the, the moral agency and culpability of the actual shooter. And that's not true at all. The same way that like yeah. general Nazis were still responsible for their horrible uh, actions, uh, despite the fact that Hitler was necessary and um, very, very culpable in, in spurring that on. That they were both yeah. helpful, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I guess, you know, that's just the kind of like the thing I want to emphasize is to say that, you know, in, in no way for looking for these sort of contextual factors does it excuse the or, or make any kind of moral excuse for for uh you know being a fucking nazi murderer well no but here's the fucking thing like our system is set up uh in throws with liberalism as it is to take out and punish the individual so like there's no fear the individual is going to be punished for the individual's action right like that's a given the thing that like the work of assigning blame and culpability what happens is that when people emphasize the individual, they forget the structures and they forget the other actors that influence that. 
And so by point yeah. by pointing that out, we want to expand the range of culpability and not not delimit it, right? Like of, yeah. like of course the individual is going to be on the hook, right? Um, that's we just don't want that to kind of elide or kind of take away from the other important factors that we also should work. And, and actually, the things that that will have lasting influence that we can affect are those structural and uh, social ideological things, right? That's a great point. And yeah, that's that's I think you've clarified my thinking there. And that that makes a lot of sense because. Yeah, you know, you, you see this from people being like, oh, it's, you know, you're sort of excusing people if you try to if you try to explain why people might have voted for Trump and so on and so forth. But, you know, if you take that too far to its like sort of logical extreme, you end up with the kind of um, who was that guy we were talking about before the the uh, Chris Wallace who's right. like, yes. oh, it's just the one person. It's the one person and no one, you know, it's their individual fault and no nothing else can ever be adduced to explain what's going on here. It's definitely not Trump's fault and it's not Fox <laughs> News' fault. Exactly. They're not my there, fault specifically. There, there are no political opinions to be taken from this incident. Just enjoy the spectacle of violence for what it is. It has no, there should be nothing that you change about what you think or who you vote for that comes from this, basically. There's one more quotation from the Judith Butler piece, the Frames of War piece, that I think is a so so we talk about whether it's political psychology, whether it's the you know sociological or um, political economy analysis of the structures that give rise to these kinds of problems, and the body politic manifests itself in these individuals who themselves are shaped. Uh, in response to these forces, right? And we can't take away their moral agency and their responsibility, but at the same time, they are responding to people like Trump and conditions that capitalism gives rise to, et cetera, et cetera. But that analysis feels like it doesn't give us hope. And where can we find the prescriptive, right, theoretical, moorings for us and where can we find some semblance of what to do in response to this and so you know i'm i'm going to give you one last quote from judith butler because in the same way that the the social ontology helps create the conditions that give rise to people who act in this way who see others lives as not grievable as not human who target others because they think those groups, those people are to blame and so on and so forth. At the same time, the opposite way of thinking is something we can inculcate personally, socially, politically. And, uh, and I think you might enjoy this, the hope at least in, in this quote. So, so Judith Butler writes, I think this is finally a Hegelian point and one worth reiterating here. The reason I am not free to destroy another, and indeed why nations are not finally free to destroy one another, is not only because it will lead to further destructive consequences, that is doubtless true, but what may be finally more true is that the subject that I am is bound to the subject I am not that we each have the power to destroy and the power to be destroyed, 
and that we are bound to one another in this power and in this precariousness. In this sense, we are all precarious lives. That's good. That's good. Yeah, and I think, you know, the last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, I I grew up in in Utah and Colorado, um, not not notably uh, Jewish places. Mormons weirdly called non Mormons Gentiles for some reason. Um, I am not Mormon for the record, uh, but you know I think this is a moment you you see left leftists sometimes saying you know like like when some kind of horrifying atrocity happens, being like ah. Oh, this is America, and you know if you don't, if you're not on board with that, you know you're naive, you're a fool, and I think that you know in a descriptive sense that may be right, but in an aspirational sense, I think I I, I really kind of strongly disagree with that type of sentiment, and I think that especially when it comes to anti-Semitism, which is like the worst belief in history, you know, like, like it's led to the worst things that have ever happened. Um, that, you know, America, I think genuinely has not had that type of problem to the same extent. I mean, it's always been here to some extent, to, to, to some degree or another, but it's never been the type of hegemonic, totalizing, murderous ideology as it has been. Um, and I think that, you know, this is just a time for, all leftists to say that, you know, if if you are Muslim, if you are, you know, Yazidi Christian, if you are, uh, you know, Quaker or some other type of oppressed religious community, and especially if you are Jewish, you know, our, we just have to extend solidarity to all of our comrades out there to say that we yes, are with you. We are with even, you. Even us, cis white men from the middle class like like it is just absolutely fucking appalling to me to see this this type and i i regard anti-semitism as just the most disgusting thing um and and you know we're 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 all searching for ways that that could sort of make sense and to help you know the Jewish community, the Muslim community, and so on and so forth. But, you know, th- this really is a time for solidarity across all of these type of minority communities. And I think that includes leftists as well. You know, it's a, it, like that Bolsonaro guy. He's, he's promising to go after the socialists, I think, before anyone else. Look, look, because Jewish lives matter, all lives matter. Because black lives matter, all lives matter. In the solidarity of recognizing the oppression and suffering of groups at the hands of those that find them less than human. We affirm our humanity. We support our humanity. We are all human. We're all worth loving. We all have the right to life and the right to prosper. We love you. We love all the groups because we fight for all the oppressed groups. We believe that we're fighting for everyone and all that are against us. May we change their hearts. And if we don't change their hearts, may we conquer them. Yes, exactly. Very well put. All right. Well, that'll do it for this uh, heavy, heavy episode of Left Anchor.
But uh, this will not be the end of our discussion of violence and fascism and capitalism and um, of the many things that we need to think through. Um, yeah. In order to com- to compare, Yeah, unfortunately, right? I think this is a topic that is not going away anytime soon. But um, there's just no getting around it, unfortunately. But that being said, I love you, Coops. Give my love to Emma. And uh, I always love talking with you and talking things through. Back at you. you. All right. Well, until next time, people, that's, that's Left Anchor. Good night.